You know, when we, we talk to people, we say, what made your family life sweet? Nobody ever mentions expensive presents. Nobody ever mentions a computer or a bike with 30 gears. You know, they, they normally begin the sentence with these two words, we always. And they'll talk about some silly tradition they did mm. when they were kids. We always did this on a Sunday. We always had fish and chips on a Friday. And you may not have a lot of money, but, but you can create the most incredible memories for your kids. Welcome, everybody. This is Simon Gilbo with Inspired. Inspired is all about just telling uh, great stories and hearing from people in different walks of life, friends from a across the planet really and uh, you know we get bombarded with so much bad news don't we so we want to have our faith edified we want to be challenged and stirred and inspired that's why we call it inspired so i'm very happy this week to have with us rob parsons welcome rob thanks simon great to have you bro so in terms of uh, some introduction rob well he's got awarded no be he's the founder and chairman of uh, care for the family well we met a few years ago at new wine sligo island i think it yeah was. that's a, right yeah we had a drink after one of your talks in the evening with your colleague at the time Catherine hill um on the back of that i became a monthly supporter i'm not saying that to brag but it just means that it's clearly care for the family as a ministry i totally believe in uh, you're an international speaker best-selling author of more than 25 books funny enough i just ordered the heart of communication this morning for my holiday reading <laughs> uh, you've done your 60-minute series. I've appreciated the 60-minute father. Um, you've done a book on teenagers, and I'm right in the thick of it right now. So we've, <laughs> we've got that one. You got your best-selling, the heart of success, uh, all sorts of stuff. And I know you've spoken across the world to more, well, if it, into the millions, I think. And you're married to Diane. You've got two children, five grandchildren. So that'll do by means of introduction. I'm looking forward to unpacking some of your background, your life, and your faith journey. So listen, yeah, let's go for it. Tell us, tell us a bit about your childhood. Well, um, I was I was brought up in Cardiff, in Wales, United Kingdom. Uh, Dad was a postman. Mum was an office cleaner. Um, we didn't have a, an inside toilet. We didn't have running hot water. We didn't have a bathroom. We didn't even have toilet paper, Simon. Wow. <laughs> um, uh, uh, even now, I can't look at a copy of our local newspaper without a million memories coming <laughs> flooding back. Um, uh, uh, but but so we didn't have much money. But my memories of that home were of love and security. Um, my dad was not a very emotional man. Um, he didn't ever tell me he loved me. He never hugged me. Um, he used to say, a father for discipline, a mother for love. But my mother told me 50 times a day she loved me. Oh. But, um, but it was a, a secure home, and uh, I, was very, I was very grateful for it, yeah. Right. And uh, any church background? Did your parents take you to church? You know, my, my mum and dad didn't go to church at all. But on the corner of my street was a little gospel hall, little brethren assembly. And one day, uh, Miss Williams, the Sunday school teacher from that church, she was a tiny lady. And she was uh, she never had children of her own. She never married. But boy, she loved kids. And one day she knocked on every door in our street and asked the adult that opened that door the same question. Would any boys or girls like to come to Sunday school? Hmm. My mother said he'd like to go. <laughs> I uh, I don't know whether she was just interested in my spiritual development or some free childcare. Yeah. But the following week, Miss Williams led me by the hand into the world of Sunday school, and and uh, it was a remarkable experience. I that well, I was about four years old, and I went to that church well into my. Uh, my, my 20s. And you know, Simon, not too long ago, they asked me to speak at the 100th anniversary of that little church. Mm. And as I left, somebody pulled my coat. 
And I, I turned and a voice said, do you remember me? It was Miss Williams. Oh. I, I thought she was about 120 when she came to get me when <laughs> I was four. I only just stopped myself saying, you're still alive. Uh, but she had a big effect on my life. So, yeah, that's how it, how it began. Oh, God bless Miss Williams. And that's an encouragement for me, uh, door knocking. I'm doing a lot of door knocking at the moment, trying to get uh, people in our estate aware of, uh, you know, what, what we as St. Andrew's Community Church are offering. We're your community church. And, and I had the joy of seeing a lady come to faith this last week. So, so it's worth it, isn't it? I mean, uh, and it, God bless Miss Williams incredible honestly and and you know we used to we used to, i wasn't any good at school academically i'll perhaps tell you about that a bit later on but but boy miss williams made you feel special mm. um we we loved her for two reasons simon we loved her because when you turned up for class she gave you a little colored sticker that you put in a book they were things like um jesus walking on the water or the feeding of the five thousand and we used to swap these we'd swap a rare feed another 5,000 for a less rare Jesus walking on the water. Yeah. Uh, and, and, but we loved her for her story. She was a brilliant raconteur. Mm. Boy, and uh, I think our favourite was David and Goliath because we all had a bully in school we'd like to see decapitated. Yeah. But she was incredible. So, yeah, big, big effect on my life. And uh, just knocking on doors was the beginning of it all. Yeah. Mm. So was there any sort of dramatic moment of conversion or was it almost by osmosis listening to all these Bible stories? Well, do you know, we, we used to go um, to a camp once a year with that little church uh, in the Gower in Wales um, under, under canvas. And there I heard somebody talk about putting your faith in Christ. And I remember kneeling in a muddy field and, and giving my life to Christ. I was, tw I was 12 years old. There were plenty of ups and downs after that, especially in the teenage years. But I think that's where it really began, uh, Simon. And my life was changed a, a bit later on when I met an older guy from our church who, who kind of took me under his wing and mentored me a bit. So, uh, those were those were very very significant moments. Um, so coming a bit further along, you, you you did a degree, did you? Well, no, no. Well, what happened was, I, I as I said, I was hopeless at school. We, I passed the eleven plus, but the, which was the grammar to the grammar school. But when I get there, it's like a, it's like another world to me, Simon. These kids have books and tutors and telephones and cars. We only had three books in our home. Uh, we had a, a Bible, although, as I say, my parents didn't go to church. Uh, we had an atlas, and we had something called the doctor's book that was so written that uh, whichever illness you looked up, you had, and also the one on the facing page. Uh, so I'm in school. I, got, I, I don't understand school, and, and I come last when I'm 14 out of 34 kids. Uh, my teacher writes in my report, he's making no use of what little ability he has. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't argue with that very much, but I'm about 15 by now. So I've been in that little brethren assembly a while and I'm walking down the road one day and all I want to do is be a rock and roll singer. And I've started a group called the Blue Jets. Mm -hmm. Now, this is the time when the Beatles were hitting number one with songs like She Loves You and Please Please Me. We all we all wanted to be the Beatles. And. And uh, an older guy from church came up to me in the street called Arthur Tovey. He was poor. They lived in two rooms in his mother's house. Arthur had a very bad speech impediment. He'd never pass an academic exam. He and his wife were told they couldn't have kids of their own, but they loved kids. They, they wanted to work with teenagers. And he came up to me in the street, Sam, and he said, um, next Wednesday, Margaret and I are going to have a Bible study in our home. 
would you like to come? Well, look, when all you want to do is walk onto the stage in Las Vegas dressed in gold lame, a Bible study on a Wednesday is not the greatest offer you've ever had. But for some reason, I said yes. Mm. Uh, yeah, he was, a, you know, he was so good with, with kids and he was a brilliant psychologist. Uh, he knew we'd get bored after a while. So after about 20, 25 minutes, he said, we're going to play table tennis. Mm -hmm. And it was a tiny room. He, he got two bits of hardboard and we put them on top of the dining table and we played ping pong with the bats up against our chest. And, and, and then he bought us fish and chips. And as we were coming back from the chip shop and the vinegar was seeping through the paper, Margaret would have the tea brewing. Do you know, Simon, when you walked into Arthur Margaret's home, you felt like a king. He mm. told you that you were special, that God had given you gifts. And, and when I was about 16, <clears throat> he said to me, Rob, do you ever take part in um, debates in school? I said, Arthur, I don't even put my hand up in class. He said, well, I think God has given you a gift of public speaking and I'm going to teach you. Now, that was scary because he was the worst public speaker you've ever heard in your life. And, and he taught me to teach the parable of the prodigal son to, to kids in the Sunday school. I wrote a book about 20 years ago called Bringing Home the Prodigals and we taught the world with that event. Mm -hmm. um, and, and Arthur taught me to teach that parable to kids. And, and, and you know, when I was about... Um, 30, my mid-30s, by then uh, I was a senior partner in a, quite a large legal practice and, and I was invited by the Law Society to, to be a keynote speaker in front of a thousand lawyers in Vienna at their annual conference. And as I'm walking on stage, I ring Arthur on my mobile phone and I said, Arthur, I'm about to go on stage, there's a thousand lawyers out there. Mm. I said, you taught me to do this. He said, did I? <laughs> and about three years after that, I'm promoting one of my books in America and they get him live on air in the radio station from Cardiff. And at the end of the interview, the, 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 the guy said to him, well, what do you think of the boy who came to your Bible class? He said, I'm proud of him. Mm. I, I cried on air. Uh, Arthur had almost nothing. But do you know what I think happened, Simon? It must have been like the little boy who brought his lunch to Jesus. You know, he's on, he's on the mountain and, and he sees this fracas going on. They haven't got enough to feed the crowd. And he looks down at the lunch his mother made him and thinks, I wonder. And he pushes his way through the crowd and, and something inside him says, sit down, you fool. Who do you think you are? There's Peter and James and John up there. But he knew if he sat down, he could never live with himself. So he says to the master, it's just the lunch my mother made me. If you want it, you can have it. And suddenly he sees that lunch broken to the crowd time after time. And, mm. and when he was an old man, he told the story to his children's children. I think that must have happened to Arthur and Margaret. They must have sat down one day and said to themselves, well, darling, we don't have very much. We can't have kids of our own right now. We haven't got any money. We, we haven't got much gift. I've got this speech impediment. We haven't passed any exams, but we got two rooms. I think we could teach them a bit of the Bible. We could buy fish and chips if we saved our money. Why don't we give it a shot? And Arthur changed my life, Simon. Oh. In fact, uh, I was speaking in South Africa some time ago to the Million Dollar Round Table, men and women who were the CEOs of multinational companies. And I was speaking about the importance of spending time with your kids when they're young, not developing your business to such an extent you, you miss their young lives. And I mentioned Arthur, and at the end, a multimillionaire came up to me with tears running down his face. He said, Rob, I think you may have changed my life. And, 
And I've got Arthur to thank for it, haven't I? Yeah. I said, you really, really have. So Miss Williams and Arthur, those were big influences in my early life, Simon. Mm. Oh, I've got tears in my eyes. Um, and it's, it's so encouraging because, I mean, I got I got some horrific school reports as well, but I wasn't, I wasn't bottom of the class and I wasn't those words spoken over you. You're never going to amount to much. And yet you have, you've amounted to a huge amount and to, in the world's eyes, let alone in, in terms of what you've done with care for the family and, and your books. But so how does, how does uh, this sort of um, loser, almost dropout end up being a lawyer? Well, it was remarkable, really. I, um, I we, we in the United Kingdom, you know, we used to do things called O-levels. Mm -hmm. They're called GCSEs now and uh, various different exams throughout the world when you're about 16. I managed to pass three and a half. You got a half if you couldn't pass maths, but you could pass arithmetic. So I managed to pass that. And then my mother got a cleaning job and she paid, uh, uh, she got enough money to pay for me for a tutor to French. And that got me through French, and I picked, I picked them up one at a time. And eventually, I got enough O-levels and A-levels uh, to get into a college of education and train to be a teacher. And I was about to, to go for my first teaching job, and I'm giving a talk to some teenagers one night at church, and there's a man lounging at the back. He was a young lawyer, early 30s, I'd seen him turn up, handsome guy in a brand new Alfa Romeo car, and he had the world at his feet. And he came up to me afterwards and he said, uh, I think you could be a lawyer. And he said, I want to offer you a job and I'm going to pay for you to go through law school. I said, well, John, I'm about to be a teacher. He said, well, it's up to you. Um, so I went home and I said to my dad, dad was uh, shaving to go on the night shift as a postman. And I said, dad, I met this guy, he says I could become a lawyer. And Simon, I remember what he said to me now as though it were yesterday. He said, son, people like us don't become lawyers. Hmm. And I don't think he was being sarcastic. He probably wanted to keep me from the pain of failure. But I, I, so I went back to John and I said, John, I, I'd love to become a lawyer, but let me teach for a year first. I trained to be a teacher and, and we do a lot with kids anyway. So perhaps at the end of that year, I'll, I'll join your law firm. And I did. I, I enjoyed teaching, but I, I had a chance to become a lawyer and I did become a lawyer. In fact, I became a very successful lawyer. Um, within a, a short period of time, I was a joint senior partner of a 10 office legal practice. And, and John and I were invited to run seminars all across the world on how to expand a legal practice. So often in the London Hilton Hotel at Park Lane or big conference centers, I would speak in front of hundreds of lawyers on on how to grow a legal practice. So that was a bit of a shock, really, mm. <laughs> to suddenly be doing that all across the world. And um, that was into my, uh, my, my early 30s. And by then I was married. And, and uh, by then we had uh, two kids and a very unusual member of our family. Shall I tell you about him? Yeah, go for it. All right, well, uh, Dan and I had only been married for a very short period of time, a couple of years, a bit longer than a couple of years. And Near Christmas one night, there's a knock on my door and I open it in the darkness. There's a man standing there. In his right hand, he's got a frozen chicken and in his left hand, a black plastic bag with all his worldly possessions in. And I say, it's Ronnie, isn't it? He said, yes, Rob. Ronnie used to come to our Sunday school when we were kids. He was in a care home. He never had a family of his own. And the Sunday school superintendent used to get him and bring him every week to the Sunday school. And then later to our youth group. And then I'd lost touch with him. He'd left the care home at 16. And, and now he was homeless pretty well. 
And I said, Ronnie, where'd you get your chicken? He said, somebody gave it to me for Christmas. I said, well, can you cook it? He said, no. I said, come on in. Diane will cook your chicken. And he came in and Diane and I invited him to stay that night with us. And he never left. Hmm. He, he lived with us for 45 years. He was there before the kids came. And he was there after they left. And, um, and when he been with us a short while, he got a job as a dustman, a kind of trash collector. And I used to be in the law practice and I used to drop him off at the dust yard, then go into the law practice. And Simon, I'd get home at night and he'd be sat in a chair smiling. And I say, Ronnie, I get home at night, you're always smiling. What amuses you so much? He said, Rob, when you take me to work in the mornings, the other men say, who's that brings you to work in the fancy car? And I say, oh, that's my lawyer. <laughs> I, I've thought a lot about that. I don't think he, he was proud of being taken to work by a lawyer. Do you know what I think it was, Simon? He never had a mother say when he went the first day of school, mm -hmm. how'd it go today, son? Never had a dad uh, say as he came home from the big school when he was 11, how'd you get on today? And now he's a man and suddenly somebody's at the gate. Yeah. And we all need somebody at the gate. So life with in our family was unusual. Uh, Sometimes people say to me, all you Christians care about is the nuclear family. My kids have never lived in a nuclear family. We've always lived in an extended family with uh, Ronnie with us. And, um, and you know, Simon, a little funny thing. When I became a partner in the legal practice, they bought me this really fancy car. And I was dying to show it off to somebody. So I thought, well, Ronnie will be impressed. So I took him out in it. I said, Ronnie, look at this car. He said, wow, Rob. And I I put my finger on the steering wheel and I moved it around with just one finger. I said, Ronnie, this is called power assisted steering. He said, I know we have it on the dust carts. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. So um, I'm interested in, uh, before getting to care for the family, uh, how did your faith work out as a, as a lawyer and as a leading lawyer? I was very fortunate. In, in that um, I would, became part of a church on a vast housing estate in our late 20s. We, I still go there now. We've been there over 40 years. And I was surrounded by people who, who genuinely cared for me. In fact, I became a leader in, in that church. And, um, uh, and so I'm in this world of business and there are, there are many, many challenges. But, but one thing I learned um, here's a strange thing, and I don't understand it. My mother didn't go to church, but she taught me to pray. Mm. And, and I can remember her kneeling down with me one night and saying, Rob, this is how you pray. Our Father, who art in heaven. And, and one thing I've done for almost all my life, and I say almost because there was a short period where I kind of stopped doing it and I, I missed it, but almost all my life I, I've prayed and, and, and spent time at the beginning of each day and and ask for God's help and wisdom. You know, we think we're clever and we're bright, but, but we desperately need that. And, 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 and I think there were many, many challenges in law and in life. I, at the time, I was very busy. Diane became quite ill after the birth of our first son. Um, she experienced a, a, a radical attack on her immune system. Her immune system practically crashed. And then she went into a long depressive illness that lasted several years. And, and those were very, very dark times. And, and I can remember as a young lawyer thinking, what's wrong with me? I, 
people come to me and I fix things for people. I make it happen. I put it right, but I can't put this right. Mm -hmm. And I can remember Dan was in bed asleep upstairs and I just got the kids to bed and and a fellow leader from the church came around. It was a winter's night and we prayed kneeling in the darkness. And I can remember feeling this incredible need of God. Uh, and you know, the honest truth is, Simon, that, that those times are difficult, but I think the problem sometimes with times of success in our lives when we think we do well, is we kid ourselves that we're in control, but we're not. Mm -hmm. Our next breath is a gift of God. Yep. Um, and, and, and certainly this last pandemic has shown us that we have literally no control. So through the law, uh, through all those experiences, I think I, I was very blessed to have his presence. And uh, uh, yeah, so, so yeah. And you go through the tough times, don't you? You don't want them, but you do. Do you know what happened one night? Diane said to me, she wasn't well enough to go to church. And she said, Rob, could we start a little group in our home? Uh, and we asked the leaders, could, could we do that on a Wednesday night? And they said, sure, go for it. And we started a group called For Strugglers on a Wednesday night. It was for people who had known emotional breakdown, mm -hmm. for those who'd lost their faith, for, for those who had no faith. And, and you were invited if you felt you were a bit of a struggler. Simon, people practically knocked our door down to get mm -hmm. into that group. Mm -hmm. I remember opening the door one night and there was a GP standing and a doctor and he said, I've come for the group. And, and our church had about 20 house groups. I said, oh, you you probably come to the wrong group. This is a struggle. No, I want to be in the strugglers group. And, and I can remember saying to one young woman, a young social worker, she was very cynical. She wasn't a Christian. And uh, I said, Jill, we're going through a bit of a tough time at the moment. We're not perhaps the greatest example of Christians that you could see. She said, oh, you're fine. And, and I went to bed that night and, I said to them, my wife, Diane, you know, I doubt you will ever come to faith in Christ. And about an hour later, it was late, perhaps about half past 11, my phone went by the side of my bed and it was Jill. Mm. And she said, I'm sorry I'm ringing you so late, but he has met me. Mm. I said, what, what do you mean? She said, well, I was driving home across the mountain. I was on my own in the car and I suddenly felt his presence. She had, I felt this incredible sense of forgiveness towards my family. She had, my heart is physically hurting. She had, will it be like this tomorrow? I said, I don't know you. You're very fortunate. It's never happened to me. Uh, uh, and Jill came to faith that night, and so did many other people in that group. She's still, uh, almost uh, 40 years later, uh, a very strong follower of Jesus. And, and we discovered in that group, Simon, what we've come to call the power of weakness. Mm. We don't need to have everything together. We don't need often to have the answers to the questions people ask us. We need to be real. Yeah. And sometimes we need to say those incredible words. Me too. I've been there. I've been through that as well. And, and the Bible says that he loves to use the weak to confound the strong and to do great things. So, so those were deep lessons of faith in our, in our lives. And I think we've never lost that. Mm, yeah.
Hey folks, I hope you're enjoying the podcast. I'm loving the response we're getting from across the world. It's, it's just wonderful to see how encouraging and inspiring it is being and hitting the spot. Listen, if you are being blessed by it, I'd love it. Basically, this happens under the auspices of our ministry, Great Lakes Outreach, which works in the poorest and the hungriest country in the world, which is Burundi. We're having an incredible impact in the toughest of circumstances. We want to carry on supporting those local folks doing a great job. So if you wanted to, greatlakesoutreach.org forward slash inspired you could make a donation there i'd so appreciate it also it's word of mouth isn't it so gossip this these podcasts to other people get them to subscribe give us a great review absolutely wonderful so grateful to you so that's greatlakesoutreach.org forward slash inspired if you want to do a monthly a couple of quid a month or or a one-off donation we'd be incredibly grateful all right now let's get back to the podcast So what made you leave the successful legal practice and and set up Care for the Family? Well, then I was uh, taken already by the time I was mid to late 30s, I was taking a day off the week from the legal practice to be involved in this church on this vast housing estate. It was Mm -hmm. a housing estate of 20, 30,000 people. Uh, we put up a, a barn, practically. It's the ugliest building in Christendom, what it used to be. We've got a, <laughs> a new well-being center added to the front of it. We're very posh in the last year or so. Mm-hmm. But it was an ugly old building. But I was involved in that church, quite a large church, a growing church, two or 300 people, pretty big for Wales. And, and I was involved in that. And, and I saw the incredible need in that community. And I've learned lessons from Diane and I's life together. And And you know what I also realized? That there were lots of charities that came along to the bottom of the cliff and they helped put families together when they were broken and they did a great job. But I realized there weren't many charities putting fences at the top of the cliff. And I wanted to help families in deep trouble, but I also wanted to help families think about bringing up teenagers when their kids were eight, nine and ten. Mm -hmm. to think about marriage before they were married, and to realize that tough times hit every home and take time to build strength in while you can, while the sun is shining. And and basically, I was doing pretty well, but I thought, well, am I going to go on just building up a load of money or or, or can we do something else? And and the, the bit of success I'd had allowed me to take quite a radical decision, leave the legal practice, we had, a, we had enough to keep us going for quite a number of years without taking any salary from the charity. And so we began. So one minute I'm in a big legal practice and if I ask for a cup of coffee, they bring me one. And the next I'm in this one room mm-hmm. uh, uh, and I stick in my own stamps on and nobody's returning my phone calls. And I'm thinking, wow, this is a bit different. But um, that's how Care for the Family began. And of course, Diane was remarkable in all that with me. Mm. And you've got gazillions of stories, haven't you, to, to share? But give us your, give us your most heartwarming, impacting stories that you think would benefit us. Oh, I, 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 I've seen some, as you say, many, many stories down, uh, down the years. I, I think of a woman who came to one of our very first marriage seminars, and uh, she wrote to me afterwards. She said, uh, "This seminar was our last hope." My husband had an affair. I couldn't forgive him, no matter how sorry he said he was. We've been married for 14 years. She said, but we came to hear you today, and we 
we heard you talk about forgiveness and about God's forgiveness. And, and I thought, well, if possible, I want my kids to have a mother and a father. And, and Simon, I know that's not always possible, but this woman thought, I'm going to give it another shot. And, and she began to try again to rebuild their marriage. She said to me, um, you made us smile and we cried together. And, and she said, we're going to try again. And she wrote a PS at the bottom of that letter. Here's to the next 14 years. And, and about 10 years after that, she sent me a photograph. Of, it was her and her husband and, and two teenage kids smiling out of this photograph. And I got my team together and I said, you know what? You may not believe this, but trust me, I mean it. I'd have done it all. All the traveling, all the books, all the speaking, to see these two kids with their mum and dad. I know it's not always possible. I understand that. But uh, I'd have done it all for that. And then recently, I got an invite to their 40th wedding anniversary. No. Um, so <laughs> these are um, amazing things, aren't they? And and we, we've seen a lot, a lot of that down the years. I, I wrote one book. I tell you, I wrote a book some years ago called The 60-Minute Father. It was a very short book. Um, uh, it's been my best-selling book ever. It was the shortest book I've ever ever written. Yeah, it's in I've many, it. many, many, many languages. And and I wrote about some mistakes I'd made when my kids were small. And as I began to tell those stories, particularly in the business world, people seemed to really resonate. Mm -hmm. Do you know, I remember when my, my kids were small, Katie would be about four years old, Simon, and I'd be reading her a bedtime story. And, and the phone would ring downstairs. We only had a phone downstairs then. And and she'd say, Daddy, please don't take it. I'd say, kid, I'll be back in a moment. And I'd rush downstairs, take those stairs two at a time. And, and I'd take that phone call. Then I'd make another phone call, then another one, then another one. And then suddenly I'd realize that I'd, I'd not finished the bedtime story. Mm. And I'd rush back upstairs. And the light would still be on. And the book would be on the pillow by her head at the page where we'd finish reading but little eyes had fought to stay awake as long as they possibly could. And you know what, Simon, I don't understand about that. And I, I don't say this to impress your audience, but I've had an interesting life. I've, I've been a lawyer of a big law practice. I've been involved in murder trials. I've, I've written, I think, almost 30 books. I've lectured all over the world. All those things have involved me having thousands of business calls. I get them today. They're almost all described as urgent. Ring her back by 2.30. Ring this one. This one's urgent. Do you know something? I can't remember one. Not one. That couldn't have waited 10 minutes while I finished the bedtime story. Mm. But but at the time, it seemed so very important. And, and you know, three things kept me in that lifestyle longer than they should have. And I wrote about these in the book, The 60-Minute Father. Number one, I used to say to myself, a slower day is coming. Life won't always be this busy. When we got the new branch office sorted out, when the computers are in, when, but you know, a slower day is not coming. And if your listeners have anything that matters to them, it's best to try to give that time today, if possible, a little time today anyway. And, and secondly, I, I, I used to think, well, I want them to have more than I had. I want my kids to have more than me. I, I want them to have... Well, toilet paper, for goodness sake. <laughs> I want them to have an insight. I want them to have a nice guy. I want them to... But somebody once said, a psychologist, he said, we're so busy giving our children what we didn't have that sometimes we don't have time to give them what we did have. Mm -hmm. And then lastly, I forgot how fast the door of childhood closes. Um, 
You know, some when Lloyd was a little boy, I used to sing him a little song before he went to sleep. It was a song my mother used to sing to me. I don't have a singing voice, but he'd let me croak it out because it extended bedtime. And one night as I began to croak, he was about five years old, he said, don't. And I said, why? He said, because it's babyish. Uh, do you know what that little boy was saying? He was saying, Dad, I love you. And we got some great times ahead. But I'm serving notice on you now that that particular door of childhood has closed now. Mm-hmm. And Simon, when it closes, no power on earth can open it. And But I was grateful I learned those lessons while my kids were young. And and as I said, I've, I've wrote about them in the book. I've talked to business people all across the world about those issues. I've I've had many conversations, particularly with men, and they were about 60 years old, and they've achieved a lot. They've got the car park in Spacemark CEO, and they've got the office overlooking the lake, but but now they've retired, and, and someone's given them a clock. Ironic that it is a clock. Hmm. And now they desperately crave relationships. Uh, but in many ways, they've missed them. It's not absolutely too late, but... But these are precious years. Mm. And uh, yeah, so so those were, were big lessons for me, Simon. Mm. Uh, let me be selfish as a, a parent of teenagers, and I've got your book on teenagers right now. Uh, did you go through any sort of really rough teen times with your kids? And what would be your top tips? Well, you know, if you have more than one child, you will almost certainly have chalk and cheese. They will be different characters. That is particularly galling if your first one is compliant, because mm. that's what lures you into having the second one. Uh, Dan and I thought we were brilliant parents for about three years. We used to give people negative advice where they were going wrong with their kids. Look at Katie, she's perfect, but it's not a good idea. Because actually in heaven, you probably may not know this, Sam, there's a little committee, and they work out the kind of kid they're going to send you next time. And when they see an arrogant parent with a compliant child, uh, the chairman of that committee says, have we got any of those other kind left? <laughs> Lloyd came into the world smoking a cigar. <laughs> that kid used to wake up every day of his young life with the same prayer on his tiny lips. Dear God, help me drive my mother crazy today. And every day God answered his prayer. Mm. And you know the testing toddler turned into the testing 10-year-old and the testing teenager. Uh, I was talking to a woman uh, in one of my seminars. She was crying. I said, what's wrong? Can I help you? She said, I'm not sure you can. She said, I've got a a girl of nine. She's a joy. And I got this little girl of six and she's given great difficulty. I got a boy of four. He's fine. But this middle one is terrible. She hits her older sibling. She hits a younger sibling. I'm getting letters from the school. She's driving us crazy. And and then she said something that's almost impossible for a parent to say. She said, sometimes I think I don't love this child. And I look at her and I can see she loves her so much she would give her life for her. Mm. I said, oh, I hear this all the time. Do you want the good news or the bad news? She said, well, well, tell me the, the good news. I said, well, it's normal. Normal. You get more than one child. This is your testing one. You somehow got to get her through. She said, well... Well, well, what's the bad news? I said, well, do people tell you that by the time she's a teenager, she'll have grown out of it? She said, yes, people tell me that. I said, well, she won't. 
She's going to test you all the way through the teenagers as well. This is your testing when you've got to get her through. And boy, that was true for Lloyd. I mean, not in massive ways, but... But I'll tell you, that kid was testing. If we'd only had Katie, I would be a disaster writing books on parenting. Because mm. I think if you can do this and this. Look, here's a little secret. When it comes to their own kids, there are no experts. Not the people who write the books or run the seminars. Just people trying to get their own kids through as best they can. But I'll tell you a mistake I made with Lloyd. And we're very close now. And, and Katie. But a mistake I made with him. But, but I saw it pretty early on. I realized that because he was the testing one, all he ever heard was negative. Mm. Stop hitting your sister. Why are you doing that? Where's your homework? Why, why do you tidy your bedroom? Why? Diane told me she wouldn't go into his bedroom unless she had a tetanus injection. <laughs> why? All he ever heard was, was negative. But none of us can live like that. Mm. When, when the ear never hears praise, the heart loses the will to try. And somebody gave me this great tip. Even with the testing heart, you've got to catch him doing something right. And, you know, the testing child often has a wonderful heart. They're great friends. They can walk into a room and light it up. They're the first to give their pocket money to a homeless person. You've got to catch them doing something right and praise them for it. I was having dinner with a, a businessman some time ago. I said, uh, tell me about your, your family. So I got three kids. I got a daughter. She's 28. She's doing a PhD. I got another daughter. She's 25. She's doing an MA. And I've got a, another child. I said, well, tell me about your third child. Oh, he said he's 19. He's dyslexic. His bedroom's a mess. He doesn't get his college working on time. Uh, he gets car parking fines. He forgets to pay them. I tell him, you better sharpen up. It's a tough world out there. I touched him on the arm. I said, sir, can you remember when you last praised that boy for anything at all? He said, I really can't. Mm -hmm. I said, when you go home, find something he does remotely well and praise him for it. It will revolutionize your relationship with him. And to his credit, he said he would. You know, the Bible said our words have the power of life, mm -hmm. of life. And they and they do. Yeah. Hmm. Looking back, I mean, you're still chairman of Care for the Family. What, what of all the stuff you're involved in, what, what brings you most joy? What are you most rightfully proud of? Uh, I think I, I, I love our work with single parents. We, we do a lot with single parents. Um, most single parents would agree, if possible, it's best for a child to have a mum and a dad. It's, it's hard bringing up kids, but, but it's not always possible. And, and so often single parents go through such tough times. You know, you and I have talked about the teenagers, but a single parent might be going through a tough time and they really don't know whether it's just the normal things the teens go through or... Some say, is it because I'm a single parent? And we run subsidized holidays for single parents. We try and get alongside single parents. The thing I love to say to single parents is this, because often they don't have a lot of money. The poorest parents can give the best gifts. You know, when we, we talk to people and they're, they're grown and we say, what made your family life sweet? Nobody ever mentions expensive presents. Nobody ever mentions a computer or a bike with 30 gears. You know what they, they normally begin the sentence with these two words? We always. We are, and they'll talk about some silly tradition they did mm. when they were kids. We always did this on a Sunday. We always had fish and chips on a Friday. And, 
And I say to single parents, you may not have a lot of money, but but you can create the most incredible memories for your kids. Do you know, when my kids were young, do you know what they used to love to do? Once a week, they would um, they would uh, bring their mattresses on a weekend from their bedrooms into our bedroom, and they would sleep on our bedroom floor. They called it a family night. And uh, once a month, we would all drag our mattresses downstairs, and we'd sleep on the living room floor. Uh, we'd listen to story tapes, and we'd eat chocolate, and the fire would be going, and we called that a super family night. Mm. Now, I put that story in a book. In, the, in fact, the book we've talked about, The 60-Minute Father, that book sold in 20 languages all across the world. So as you can imagine, Simon, I've got families all across the world dragging mattresses down, downstairs. And, <laughs> And I was speaking in Canada some time ago, and I walk into this big auditorium for I'm about to speak. And a guy says to me, uh, are you a Parsons? I said, I am. He said, well, we did the whole super family night thing. <laughs> but he said, it's a king-size mattress. And he said, my wife and I are bringing this mattress downstairs, and it falls on my wife. And as I go to get it off, I put my back out. I've been off work for a fortnight, and I thought he was cross with me. And then he smiled, and he said, but it was worth it. Aww. And you know, uh, I, I, I love that. Our, our kids remember those simple things. Do you know, we were doing some stuff with single parents and a single parent told me a lovely story. She said, um, she was going to one of our single parent groups and um, uh, the, the leader talked about how important it is for families to eat together. Mm. A lot of families don't eat together now and have the mobile phones off. And incidentally, Simon, Parents are 10 times worse on mobile phones than kids. Mm. So, so if we want to do something about that, we ought to turn our phones off when we're with our kids and, and when we watch the television program with them, actually watch it with them. Mm. We saw a really sad thing the other day. It was a little girl running out of school. She had a painting to show her mother. She's about six years old, but her mother was too busy on her phone to, to look at it. And, and that's, that's sad, isn't it? Anyway, uh, this, this leader was talking about how important it is for families to eat together. And, and this single-parent mum said, well, well I, we don't have a table and chairs. And, and the leader said, well, why don't you just put a blanket on the floor, perhaps even just once or twice a week, and, and sit around that and eat your meal like that? And she said, well, that's a great idea. But, but on the way back from the, the class, she passed an old second-hand shop, and in the window was a table and four chairs. And she went in and she asked how much it was. And the guy allowed her to put a few pounds off it every week. And, and so every day, week when she came to the class, she paid a little money off it. And, and eventually, I think after six or seven weeks, she walked into the class and said, my table and chairs is being delivered tomorrow. Mm. What she didn't know was that all the other single parent mums knew what she was doing. And they'd been saving too. And they bought her a cutlery set. Oh, and a salt and pepper set and some candles and some serviettes. Mm. And she said, that night we dined as kings. It's a lovely, it's a lovely story, isn't it? Yeah. The sheer power of community being together. Yeah. <sighs> Beautiful. Um, we're coming towards an end time-wise, but I, I want to hear just a bit from your new book, From the Heart, talks about lessons you've learned from the hard times. Can you tell us a few of those? Yeah, um, you know, I, uh, Simon, I think when we begin as Christians, we imagine that there's a deal between us and God. And the deal goes something like this. Um, I will follow you 
but you will look after me. Mm. I know I'm going to get flu and, and some little things, but no big things. No losing my job. No friends who die of cancer. No big breakup in relationships. Uh. But the honest truth is, Simon, um, there's no deal like that. Mm. The only deal is, is that he promises to be with us. When you walk through the waters, I will be with you. And what I discover often is that many Christians, when they go through tough times, they lose their, their faith. It's almost as if they say, if God loved me, why would he do this to me? Do you know, I remember some years ago, Dan and I were involved in speaking at one of our weekends for parents who have children with very challenging situations. Care the family had taken about 60 parents away. Some of these kids have emotional or physical challenges. Some are addicted to illegal drugs. And, and uh, Dan and I were speaking somewhere else on the Friday night, and I joined them on the Saturday night. And I go in, and there's 60 people there, and they got their backs to me. I slip in in the back row. I got a message in my pocket. I'm about to speak to them. And, and they're singing a worship song. And, and suddenly the woman in front of me, falls to her chair and begins to cry and then rushes out and I went out after her. I said are you okay she said you're Rob aren't you I said I am she said well it was kind of you to come after me I said what's wrong she said oh my son was a drug addict and the dealers caught him and set him on fire and she said eventually he was asked to give evidence in court against them and I I begged him not to but he insisted that he would but he didn't turn up in court and the police came looking for him and and she said, I went looking for him and I found him dead in a squat. Two men were seen running from the squat and the police are trying to work out whether he was murdered, whether he took his own life or overdosed accidentally. And she said, I think he was murdered. And, and I prayed with him, comforted the best I could. And then I went back in and I sit in the front row and, and I'm about to give my talk this in my pocket. And a, a woman is speaking. She's about 28, 29 years old. And she said, my... Husband and I desperately wanted children. And then I became pregnant. But then my husband contracted cancer and he died. When my little girl was born, she had Down syndrome. She's six years old now. And she said, the other day, I'm in the garden at my home and I'm praying with a friend from church who's ill. And suddenly my little girl comes out and she puts one hand on my friend's arm and another hand in the air. And she begins to pray for my friend to be well. Mm. And Simon, I am sat there and I'm thinking, what on earth can I say to these people? The message I prepared didn't look anything like as great as when I prepared it. Mm. And then it came to me. And this is what I said to them when I stood up. I said, some of you have disabled children, don't you? And they nodded. But you love them anyway, don't you? And they nodded again. And I think they thought I was about to say, that's how God loves you. He loves you anyway. But I didn't say that. I said, that's how you love God. You don't love God because everything in the garden is rosy. Life's hard for you at the moment. You love him anyway. And you may feel that your faith is sometimes weak or poor, but do you see how precious that is to God, to love him against the odds? I hear Christians say, God's blessed my home, my business, my church. Isn't God good? Yes. Enjoy those times. But mm -hmm. that's not the test. The test is when you say with an old prophet, though the fig tree shall not blossom and there be no fruit on the vine. 
and the produce of the olive field and the animal sheep in the stall. Still will I rejoice in you. They start crying. I'm crying. We're all crying. Mm. <laughs> and you know, some some years after that, I was speaking at a very big conference, New Wine or Spring Harvest or something. And I'm going down. I told that story from the stage. And as I'm going down the aisle, a woman comes up to me with a teenage girl with Down syndrome. And it's this girl. Oh. And I hug her. Mm. And I say, I've told your story all over the world. But Simon, you asked me what hard lessons I've learned. That was a hard lesson. That sometimes you don't get the answer to every prayer you want. God doesn't sometimes give you everything you want. It was true even of the Lord Jesus who prayed, Father, if it possible, let this cup pass from me. And just an hour later, he said to his disciples, the cup that the Father's given me, I must drink it. But but knowing God is is knowing him with us in those times. Um, those are deep lessons. Yeah. Um, you know, I just want to sort of leave silence for us to reflect, really. Um, I can tell you, I can tell you a, my favorite story in the whole world. Shall I do that? Go for it. Okay. Sometimes people say to me, Simon, why well, have you tell so many stories? What's your, what's your favorite story? I think it's this one. It's of a little boy whose parents owned one of the very first telephones. I put it in a book I wrote called Let Me Tell You a Story. He said, we lived on the plains in America. It was a wooden thing and uh, uh, they delivered it and you had to wind it up. And um, my mother would say, information, please. And a voice would say, this is information. And information, please, would tell them uh, the time or get them a number or even prophesy the weather. And he said, one day when I was nine years old, uh, my parents were out and I banged my thumb with a hammer. He said there was no point crying because there was nobody in. And then I remembered the telephone and I got a little stool and I stood on it and I, I wound up the telephone and I said, information, please. And a voice said, this is information. And I said, I banged my thumb. And information, please, said, is your mummy in? No. Is your daddy in? No. Is it bleeding? No. Could you get to the ice box? Yes. Hold some ice against it. He said it worked. He said after that, I rang information, please, for anything. Information, please, help with my geography homework. She told me where Philadelphia is. Information, please, taught me to spell disappear. And when my pet canary died, I cried and said, why would God make anything that can sing so beautifully and let it die? Information, please, said Paul, you must always remember there were other worlds to sing in. And then my parents moved to New York City and I was out of her area. And anyway, I didn't believe information, please, could live in this new plastic phone. And I never rang her again till I was 24 years old. And I flew into my old town and I'm in the airport lounge. And I look at the telephone and think, I wonder. And I dial and I say, information, please. And a voice says, this is information. And I said, could you teach me this bell disappear? And she said, I expect that thumb is better by now. And I said, oh, do you realize what you meant to me? She said, do you realize what you meant to me? We couldn't have children of our own. I used to love it when you rang me. Now, remember to ring me. My name's Sally. Uh, and I'm very old, I only come in a couple of times a week, but try and get me when you're in my area. And he said, I promised her and, and often I would get her and we would talk. 
And then one day, I rang and I said, information, please. And a different voice said, this is information. And I said, could I speak to Sally? And the lady said, sir, I'm sorry. Sally died a couple of weeks ago. She was very old. She only came in occasion. Oh, I'm sorry to trouble you. No, wait. Is your name Paul? Why, why yes, it is. Well, Paul, Sally said, if you happen to ring, we must be sure to give you this message. Paul, you must always remember there are other worlds to sing in. And I think, Simon, we have to live our lives, giving all we can to this life and what we see here, but we also have to keep our eyes on that other world. The Bible puts it like this, so we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary trouble is achieving for us a glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen will last forever. Amen. Um, well, you can hear my snottiness. I'm crying. I, I suspect a number of people <laughs> listening. Uh, the gift of storytelling, and uh, you've got an anointed ministry, brother. Listen, um, I did have some other questions, but we'll call it a day there. That's a great you Sure, you got enough? You got enough? Yeah, yeah, that's wonderful. It's all been gold. It's been fantastic. Um, on your behalf, I'd love to promote, uh, guys, a website and a ministry to check out careforthefamily.org.uk. Rob's written uh, as he, nearly 30 books. Your latest, is it, uh, From the Heart? Yeah, the new book is called From the Heart, uh, uh, An Honest Look at Life and Faith, where I talk about 50 different subjects that have really affected me, including disappointment, disappointment with ourselves, disappointment with others sometimes and even sometimes occasionally disappointment with God. But I talk about 50 things. It's called From the Heart, An Honest Look at Life and Faith, published by Hodder. Brilliant. Well, I'm sure uh, a lot of people want to read that and, and other books. As I said, I've got the teenagers on right now. And uh, yeah, standrewsbookshop.co.uk. We want to support those guys. But uh, yeah. Rob Parsons, thank you so much for your time. It's been superb. Simon, great to talk to you. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Wonderful. Guys, I trust you've been moved and stirred and encouraged and inspired. And it's done what it says on the tin. Listen, um, I'd love it if you gossiped and shared this podcast with as many of your mates as possible to, to bless them. Uh, if you could give us a great review on iTunes, Spotify, it just means more people through the algorithm get sent this and uh, more people will get blessed in the process. If you want to be in touch with me, simongilbert.com or any of the social media platforms. But in the meantime... Have a great week. Next week, we'll have another fantastic guest. But God bless you in the meantime, and toodaloo.